Do we have oh. a quorum? We do not. We're gonna we're gonna talk about that in just a minute. All right, um, Richard, it's all you. Okay, it is six eighteen. Uh, we're gonna call the meeting to order. Brenda, can we call the roll, please? Yes. Loretta Mallon will not join us tonight. Richard Harvey Jr. He present. Serena Clayton. Present. Tammy Wostow. Present. Mark Smith. Here. Derek Turner. Will not join us tonight. Can you spell Richard? I can do that one moment. All right, we'll see that didn't work. So let me try that again. Um, he may, Richard, are you looking at your own document or do you need the screen share? No, I, I, I have it. I have you, it. Are you okay if I stop sharing the document for a second so we can just do the introduction and then I'll put this the document back up on the screen. The folks in the room here would like to see you more than just a two inches up at the top of the screen. Is <laughs> okay. that okay? Yeah, no, that's fine. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, uh, the reason, hello everybody, happy new year. Happy new year. I'm sorry I'm unable to join you guys this evening. Unfortunately, I contracted COVID over our Christmas holiday break. Um, I'm shaken back from that. Um, unexpectedly, I took a test yesterday and I was like, something is wrong. And so um, I took a test yesterday just to make sure and it came back positive. So that's why I'm here at home. Um, so that's why I'm here remotely. But uh, business must be taken care of. So we will carry on. Loretta, she is away, but she did send her. Um, she just said, told me to share um, happy holidays with you guys, and she will be back soon. Um, next month, she will be back to take back her chair. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so let's carry on um, to uh, the approval of the minutes from December. Can I entertain a motion for the approval for the minutes for you can't do approval. Yeah, so unfortunately for tonight, um, we got uh, advice from legal counsel that since you're not in the room with us, Richard, that technically we don't have a quorum. And so tonight's okay. meeting is going to be informational only. So okay. we're not doing any action items. So you don't need to do any motions. And we're just doing information. And we're going to do all the presentations that we have planned. And if our member... Derek uh, Turner arrives, then we would be able to go back and do the action item. Okay. All right. Well, then moving on. Um, our medical director report. I'm going to share the screen again so that people can look at that, okay? All righty. <clears throat> Great. So uh, I wanted to continue the conversation that we started last time when uh, Dr. Lai was here and presented some of the research that uh, that she'd done 
um, just looking at uh, the actual population that we're planning for um, in terms of, of uh, the drop-in clinic and expansion of drop-in services that we've been talking about for a long time as a, as a co-applicant board. Um, so what I'm gonna do is just review some of the data that we have from Alameda Alliance around what patients who are assigned to us who are in high needs populations, like what their current, what, what that current currently looks like. And, um, and then some of the best practices that um, Drs. Lai, Dr. Ewald, myself have been um, learning about by looking at the literature, talking to other people um, in our area and, and even our own local best practices here at Alameda Health System. Um, so feel free to stop me along the way and ask questions. We don't have to make it very formal. We, the presentation is one that has been presented at the internal Cal AIM committee, as well as to our medical directors, you know, across the um, ambulatory and the homeless health center. Um, since I was on vacation last week, I didn't have an opportunity to create a separate agenda item and, and do all that, but we figured we could put the same content in the medical director report. So this can be pretty informal and feel free to stop and ask questions along the way. Um, so I just wanted to uh, start out by, you know, grounding us in, uh, I think something that we all know, which is that homelessness, homeless deaths and overdoses are dramatically increasing in Alameda County and California. Um, so you can see these, you know, trends over the last five years in each of these areas, um, show these really not subtle, you know, changes in, um, in uh, these indicators um, to, to the point that we're at over 10,000 people probably by now um, in early 2024 experiencing homelessness in Alameda County. Um, you can go to the next slide, Heather. Um, so it's not surprising that these populations among others have been prioritized by the state of California um, for this new benefit that's called enhanced care management. So for people who are receiving Medi-Cal in California, if you're in one of these higher risk groups, you're homeless, you're at risk for an avoidable hospitalization, you have severe mental illness, et cetera, um, you're eligible for um, a service where someone can coordinate the care that you, you're assigned a care manager who assesses your needs holistically and can coordinate care across the medical and social services systems. Um, and uh, these populations are also prioritized in other ways um, in the state, you know, through um, also an array of community supports, things like food and housing supports that, um, that can go to people in these categories who, who need that. Um, so because, you know, this group includes folks who are experiencing homelessness and it includes a lot of folks who are at risk of being homeless, um, and we know, you know, that homelessness is really a temporary condition for people. Like we've said often that we're a homeless health center, um, but we're very deeply integrated with the rest of the Alameda health system because people go in and out of homelessness, but they don't necessarily leave Eastmont when they're not homeless anymore, right? Um, so we, we wanted to partner, um, you know, with the Bridge Clinic, um, with, the, with the HIV Clinic, um, where we see a lot of patients also in these marginalized groups to think holistically about this higher needs population. So the next um, set of slides, we'll look at who are our um, um, patients who are assigned to us by Alameda Alliance, who we're, we're, the primary, we're supposed to be the primary care providers for, um, and what are we doing to serve them right now? Um, but I can pause before we jump in and just see if there's any clarifying questions kind of about that context or background we have. I have one question. Um, 
do you think that how comprehensive is that so you get assigned if you get identified and how how are people identified i think that this is probably an under um it's probably an undercount of yeah. people who are eligible for enhanced care management um you could be identified through administrative data um, that Alameda Alliance has access to. Okay. You can also be identified by a provider who then mm -hmm. notifies the Alliance. We have someone we think is eligible. And so I think as the program ramps up, we're only a little bit over a year into um, enhanced care management. Um, as the program ramps up, I think we're gonna see the numbers of people who are eligible go up. So this is probably an undercount. I have a question. I think it's related to it. Um, will it be over time changing? Because the whole time that I was homeless, like our doctors didn't know right, at all. And there's no, like they ask you, are you being beaten? Are you safe? They ask those questions. Will there, would time come out a process that helps to identify our homeless for housing and secure settings? There, so there's already some processes using administrative data, things like, are you in the homeless system of care? Um, are you, you know, are you, there's data systems that, if you're in a program that's supported by housing and urban development funding, you have to be part of the HMIS system, and Alameda Alliance is able to see that, and then they can they can tie the um, the fact that you're homeless to your, your eligibility for this program. And then we, as a system, have a screening process in registration. So we ask everybody when they come in registration, what's your living situation, um, and um, that allows us to know, you know whether people are experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity. And then we can use that if we want to, if someone's not seen as eligible, but we know that they're homeless and we want them to have access to the care management service, there are processes already in place for the provider to tell Alameda Alliance, we think this person's eligible and they should be eligible for this service and for that to be, you know, basically then for them to be then made eligible for the service. I just had Alameda Alliance the whole time, but, you know. So well, this is I new. This is, okay. this is new, this is less than a year old. So yeah, that's yeah, one of the exciting things about it is it's, it's a new opportunity and a reason to maybe provide that information and do that because you actually get a benefit if you, if you are known to be in one of these groups. Whereas prior to this, there wasn't any special benefit. You weren't necessarily entitled to be assigned a care manager or entitled to receive some of these support services in the community if you were identified as homeless. So this is a really big opportunity for us in California across the state. To, to change that experience that you've had. Um, Richard, am I, should I keep going? Anything from you? You can keep going. Okay, great. Um, so just starting with, with uh, overall numbers, um, we have almost 6,000 members um, that are assigned to us who are, um, in one of these high needs groups. Um, they're about half and half male and female. Um, I, we were really interested to see that 30% of them almost are age 18 to 30. So a lot of younger folks um, in the sort of world of complex care and social needs, you know, a lot of work has been done around high utilizer populations, which tend to be older. Um, and uh, so this was, you know, something interesting to see that the state has defined these priority populations in a way that actually includes a lot of younger people. Um, we have quite a bit of uh, 
missing data on race ethnicity or or other data that you know we can't further define so that's 30 percent of the patients but among the remaining patients um the plurality are african-american so 33 percent um 21 percent hispanic uh the zip codes that are best represented are in um oakland and east oakland uh primarily but um what i say there under that asterisk is that there are 24 zip codes that have at least 50 ECM eligible, 50 folks in these high needs groups who are assigned to Alameda Health System. So this population is really spread out across a pretty wide area within Alameda County. Um, and no, no zip code has more than 12%. So, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty geographically spread out group. And then even though this may not be the reason that everyone qualified, and this is likely an undercount by you know, identifying housing, we know that 33% of this population is unhoused. Um, or Alameda Alliance knows in the, in the data that, that they collect, that 33% are unhoused. So housing is a really important issue, as you would expect, for across all of these high-needs groups, not just among people who are, um, who are known to be, you know, who are, who are made eligible for ECM because of homelessness. So on the next slide, this is just looking at how are people using our outpatient services currently. Um, so we have, you know, as you all know, four wellness centers, um, and basically this population is distributed kind of similar to the overall population at our wellness centers. So the highest number are at Highland, about 2,300, and then fewer numbers at Eastmont, slightly less at Hayward, and, and the least number at Newark. Um, is that by assignment? That's by assignment, okay. yeah. And yeah. you defaulted into something. Exactly. Yeah. Often based on geography in part, um, there's an algorithm they use. Um, not always you can change it, obviously. So if you want to go somewhere else, you start going somewhere else, you know, there's a process month to month to, to actually make a change, but um, there's a, there's a default assignment. Um, so uh, in terms of utilization of primary care, you know, people going to primary care visits over half of the Patients have not seen a primary care doctor at all in the last year. Um, wow. And only 4% have seen a doctor more than five times, a primary care doctor more than five times in the last year, even though some of these folks are in pretty, pretty high needs groups with multiple, um, that are known to have you know, members with multiple chronic care needs, for example. Um, kind of similar numbers in the specialty category, although remarkably there's more people who've seen greater than five specialists. So 13% of folks have seen greater than five specialists, uh, greater than five visits to a specialist uh, in the last year. What, what would you, <clears throat> excuse me, what would you attribute to the difference between those two numbers in terms of like the specialty care, uh, the fact that they're seeing more people specialty care as opposed to primary, is it because the population, because of, because their housing situation, they have much more, um, serious medical issues than most people who are housed? No, I, I really, I really don't know. I, you know, all we had was a, was a marker of specialty visits, um, not even broken down by specialty individually. So I think uh -oh. we'd have to, you know, get additional data to be able to dig deeper into that question. Okay. Um, so I'm not, I'm not really sure. Okay. Um, I mean, I do, I do think, you know, we can see that for who these groups are and for what we know about the epidemiology, that primary care is 
really underutilized. Um, and we would expect people, especially people who are seeing a lot of specialists, to have someone quarterbacking that and coordinating that. Yes. And then we would expect folks, you know, who are in one of those priority groups, you know, who are likely to have, you know, depression, anxiety, high blood pressure, diabetes, more likely to have infectious diseases like hepatitis C or HIV, um, more likely to have social needs, more likely to have substance use disorders. All of those are treatable in a primary care context. And, um, and so we would expect, I think, to see higher levels. If we, were, if we were serving, you know, meeting the level of need, we expect to see much higher utilization of primary care. And, and primary care, if I'm not mistaken, primary care, at least traditionally, usually are the ones who actually refer you to a specialist. Yeah, in most in most systems, that's the that's the structure. Yeah, um, although you can you know you can get to see specialists other ways as well. But but this not but but that's not particularly the case here. Here, I, I think it probably is the case. I mean, there are ways. For example, if you are in the emergency room and you see a specialist in the emergency room, you can you can go directly to see the specialist after that. Oh, um, I would say works. Yeah, so it, it's possible to see a specialist without seeing a primary care provider in our system as well. Right. The more common pathway is to be referred from from primary care. Right. Um, all right, so looking at the acute care utilization, hospital utilization, and emergency department utilization, um, we could see that um, about, you know, 40% of folks have used, the, a little bit more than 40% have used the ER at some point in the last year, um, which is pretty, pretty high if you think about, you know, as a marker of, uh, of illness. Um, and 5% of them have used the ER more than five times, but there are a large chunk that haven't used the ER at all and a large, very large chunk that haven't been hospitalized at all. So this is not a quote unquote high utilizer population that the state has defined. This is a priority health population. These are folks who are likely to be sick, likely to have complex health and social challenges together that may lead to utilization later in life, but they're not already necessarily in the ER all the time or in the hospital all the time which I think is a really distinct way. It's a really distinct frame shift um, for a lot of us who've been doing kind of complex care work um, to focus on people who are not already high utilizing. Um, and I think it's, it's a welcome change, you know, frankly, for a lot of us, but it's, it represents a really big shift in how we think about this in our system. Um, and then if we look at actual enrollment in the enhanced care management program, um, so out of these 6,000 folks, almost 6,000 folks, over 5,500 are not enrolled in any enhanced care management. So the service that they're now entitled to, you know, over the first year, this is not very different from the numbers we're seeing statewide. There's not a lot of enrollment in this. It's, um, there's a lot of complex <laughs> transformation in the Medi-Cal system that is take, you know, moving our attention to things, for example, like in our county, you know, Anthem Blue Cross is no longer a provider of, of managed Medi-Cal. So everyone has had to move to Alameda Alliance or to Kaiser, um, who's in the managed Medi-Cal. And that's taken a lot of attention and energy. And so building all the systems across the state to enroll more folks into, um, into enhanced care management has, um, has gone pretty slowly. Um, and this isn't, like I said, this isn't unique to Alameda County. Um, but you can see, you know, only roughly 200 or so are assigned to our own enhanced care management programs, 
out of the 6,000 and uh, about 50 or so are at the next highest. And then there's 64 people who are assigned to a smattering of, you know, onesie twosies to lots of different programs around the community. Some of which are based at community mental health organizations like Bay Area Community Services, BACS or Abode, some of which are based at um, community, other community health centers like Lifelong or Root, so like Clinica. Or the Trust Clinic. Or the Trust Clinic even. So I think there's, yeah, I, like I said, those are like onesie twosies. Like there's very small numbers in, in each of those. Uh, one question. Um, what is the Institute on Aging and what services do, you know, do they provide? I have asked a few people that question and I don't, I don't know who they are yet. So uh, okay. I'm, still, I'm still working on answering that same thing, but they're, they're our second highest ECM providers. So. I, I saw that and yeah. I was just wondering. Who, I don't know if there's anyone else on who, who, know, who knows them, but I've been asking around also trying to find out or anyone else in the room who knows it's not aging. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what they do. So the AHX, AHS Complex Care Management, what, is, what does that look like? So Lily McRae's been and presented about our complex care management teams and talked about the team structures, um, which uh, have a nursing lead and then community health workers who do care management. There is a, a team that's also specialized around the higher, the highest utilizers um, that she's talked to us about as well. Um, so those are those teams. Um, uh, they're, they're doing you know, typically pretty intensive case management with pretty low case loads um, you know, 20 to 30 uh, people per care manager, and then with a lot of backup from social work and nursing services. And so would they, are they managing all different needs? Like there's all these different populations that, you know, are they doing all of them or are they only doing some? No, they're, they're managing all the ones that are currently eligible that are in the program. So um, the state has had a little bit of a complex system for rolling out which of the priority mm -hmm. populations, but I think by January 2024, mm -hmm. pretty much all of them are in, mm -hmm. are now mm -hmm. in. Um, there is some money that's specially targeted to some of the groups. So, um, for example, um, we've received a cited grant for um, substance use, co-occurring substance use disorder and behavioral health. And so there's a specialized group treatment, you know, specialized group for, for those folks. Um, but it is across the full, the range is, is the full range. Mm -hmm. And the underutilization is dramatic in all categories. Mm -hmm. And um, does AHS, is this penciling out financially, like does AHS want more utilization because it's it's sustainable with the reimbursement? Um, I guess those are those are uh, two different questions. So one, I could say that the reimbursement for enhanced care management does not cover the cost of the service. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't think that means that AHS doesn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, yeah, um, I meant from a business standpoint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so I think, I think um, it, it, it's very obvious though, and for nobody, almost statewide, I, I mean, everyone's complaining about the rates and mm -hmm. saying they're not enough to cover the level of service that this high need group needs. Mm -hmm. And that's one of probably the underlying reasons for the lower uptake statewide. So do we know if this low number is because they were offered it and they didn't want it or didn't continue it or they were never offered or they were like, where does Never it, offered, yeah, never I mean, offered. That, that's okay. very clear, yeah. Oh, okay. It's not that we've offered and there's been no uptake for a very large number of folks. Okay. Um, 
yeah, I, you know, we, there is a category in the Allied Alliance data for people pending enrollment and things like that. That's not much larger than this, but I think just, just by being in this mix, I, I know that it's not, it's not because we've offered it to a number of people. We're, our capacity is probably around 300 um, for the AHS complex care management program alone um, with the additional subsidy beyond the ECM um, rates that we're getting. And that's, that's what our capacity is. So we aren't currently enrolled up to our own capacity, but our own capacity doesn't get us it's close to 6,000. Yeah. But there's all these other providers out there that, that we could be referring folks to from the AHS. They could be referred to Trust Clinic, you know, all these different... There's a large number of providers, but they're also not clamoring for more people. It's not like there's a, there's a you know, groundswell. I don't know how close we are to the capacity, you know, community, the planned amount community-wide. I think, I don't know who's measuring that. I don't know who's monitoring that and asking these questions. This is some of the first data like this that I've seen a year and a half into the program outside of what the state reports are. So I would love, you know, for example, as we've talked about the ad hoc committee, I think this is something that ad hoc committee could help us take on as a follow-up to the retreat that we had with, you know, county supervisors in attendance and Alameda Alliance in attendance or, or um, you know, healthcare for the homeless, at least in attendance. Um, can we, as a community, start to ask and answer some of those questions with the data that are available to us? Who's planning on scaling up? In what parts of the county does it match what people are? Which populations are we missing? Um, right now, we're not at a place, um, at least I'm, I'm not, um, aware of any, and I've looked, of any place where we're really having that conversation as a community. Um, so key, key findings, just to summarize this um, section, um, the HS assigned population is very diverse in age, um, very diverse in race, ethnicity, very diverse in geography. They're also probably very diverse in their clinical needs. This is probably not a one size fits all kind of thing. Um, even within, you know, Lily's programs, right? There are, um, there, there are individuals who are housing specialists who are dedicated towards folks who have more severe housing issues. There are folks, you know, there are teams that are more dedicated to substance use disorder and, and mental illness. Um, and so, um, you know, as we serve the population, I think we're gonna have to contend and figure out that range of diversity. Um, homelessness is really common in the high needs population, so 33%. Ambulatory care is underutilized. Um, less than, you know, or more than more than half have not had a primary care visit at all. Um, more than 60% have not had a specialty visit. Um, these are not high utilizers as a group. Some of them are, but not all of them are. And that's how our complex care management programs have been defined and how their enrollment up until the ECM program started has worked is it needs to be people who have gone to the hospital a lot, gone to the ER a lot to get into our complex care management programs. But this is not, this is not designed in that way. It's not meant to be designed that way. And then less than 10% are actually enrolled in the enhanced care management service itself. Um, so we have a long way to go to kind of get to um, the level of need that's out there. Probably 100% enrollment is, you know, people are going to decline. Not everyone wants a care manager in their business, absolutely. But I think, you know, 10% is well below probably what the, you know, quote unquote demand for the, for the services. 
Um, I don't know, just that's a good place to pause too on the key findings uh, and just see if there are any other questions or comments, any other data elements that struck you guys. I, my other, I guess one of my questions is obviously um, we want to see these numbers in terms of utilization increase given the population. And it's like, <clears throat> we know the need is out there. So I guess I'm trying to figure out um, what could be happening that would, um, that no nobody is utilizing this. And I'm just, either they don't know about it or they haven't heard about it or didn't refer to it or, um, or there's something else going on with um, individuals who are just simply um, don't like doctors <laughs> or don't like hospitals, don't like, yeah. Yeah, I think um, what we can get to that in some of the strategies for at least developing a clinic space because um, there's underutilization of ECM, there's underutilization of clinics, and I think um, the answers, there's probably some answers in common and some answers that are distinct for each of those for each of those services but i think what we've done next that we'll get to in the presentation is look at well what does a low barrier you know version of, of clinical services look like um, for for some of these high needs populations uh, that's doing a good job and i think the inverse of that maybe can help us think through our own system and where we're where we're missing right and, and i assume one of the reasons for um, the funding for this program is basically to uh to get the people who are underutilizers, right? I mean, people who need it, but just aren't getting the service or not accessing the, the service. Yeah, I think I think the, you know, the, I mean, the Cal-AIM program overall, advancing innovation in Medi-Cal, I think the goal is really to provide more efficient and higher quality services to traditionally marginalized and left out groups and communities um, and figure out how we can provide services like care management and housing assistance and food and primary care to folks who we traditionally have said, until you get to the ER, we don't really think about you. Even we don't even really think about your outpatient services <laughs> and, you know, until you're using the ER multiple times. So mm -hmm. that's definitely the articulation at the level, at the state, you know, like why we're doing, why, why CalAIM, why ECM? Um, I think the, um, you know, the amount of money is a big challenge to, to figure out how do you do it with the amount of money that they're putting toward it? Um, what's a meaningful step up, you know, given the, the lo pretty low rates um, that they're paying for, um, for enhanced care management? Yeah. Um, so we can go to the next slide. Or, and, or, I wanted yeah, to ask a couple ahead. questions. First of all, that's is really interesting. I love this. And I really appreciate that comment about how different it is. Because I mean, I've known this, but I didn't really see it until you said it. And it's, um, it's, it's like actual population health being now brought into the healthcare arena, because normally it was like, it's like, it's, it's just so self-serving to be like, oh, we're focused on the high utilizers, but like, then all the people that don't come in, we, we're not really worrying about them. <laughs> they're, they're just out there, but we don't. Um, okay, so my question is, um, a couple questions. Is it possible to look only at the unhoused segment of this 500, 5,900, so like the 2,000 who are unhoused? Yes, it is. Okay. So can we look at that and look at 
their utilization? Because I feel like that's our job. Uh, sure, I can do. I can present some of the some of these same data just yeah. with that set subsegment. Yeah. yeah. And now I'm just going to keep asking things, and if they're not possible, is it possible to look at to break that out by the medical home? So, like, are people with different medical are these medical homes performing differently in terms of their engagement of our population? By, by the way, in terms of it should be yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me interrupt you. Okay. In um, in trying to get the uh, the number of people um, using these uh, services, has the state uh, in giving the funding uh, have they mandated that we meet certain ben benchmarks yes. regarding this funding? Uh, not not so much around outcome benchmarks, although they're monitoring those. But I think the reporting is really the challenging thing. So we've had to reconfigure our reporting systems. We've installed a new module in Epic, for example, called Compass Rose that allows us to, um, and we've configured that in a way that allows us to do some fairly in-depth reporting. And that is a that is a widespread um, concern across the state that the reporting needs are quite onerous for the amount of money that um, that's, that's being given. Um, so just to respond to finish responding to your question about medical home, I think the numbers at Hayward and Newark, once we slice by homelessness, are going to start are yeah. pretty small. Yeah. So, um, but we can we can yeah. look at them. Yeah. Um, and then I'm also wondering. I'll do it with the data that we have already, um, because part of this is also the data request process. Right. And just so you know, like this is, I made this request internally. We got some data internally. I couldn't figure it out. We actually got better data from the Alliance, although we made a different request to the Alliance. They gave us the data we asked for from Alameda Health System oh. um, because they didn't give us, we were asking for data on all the ECM eligible members who used Alameda Health System, which aren't just the ones assigned to us. Okay. And they ended up sending us back data on just those assigned, but it was oh. it was cleaner at least so that the variables were easier to understand. And then and then I did the analysis, you know, it's not, not our BI team, it was me, just me doing it. So these will be also done by me when I can. Yeah, okay. So this came from the Alliance. Yeah. Oh, interesting. These okay. are data on, from the Alameda Alliance, but on members they've assigned to us. Right, right. So I think that's the Alliance that's gonna be held accountable. And they might pass that accountability down to their providers, but the state is contracting with the health plans and they're telling them, you have to give everyone this ECM benefit. And at some point, they're going to say, hey, 10% is not enough. Like, we're going to start to have a threshold. I don't think they're doing that yet, but I, I it's too it. early, I think. Yeah. But at some point, the state will hold the plan accountable. Um, and, I, well, and I think the plans have a pretty cohesive voice with the state. Like, you've also set the requirements. You've set the payment rates. So, you know, the, the, I think there's... I think all of us are all in this together. Yeah. The providers, the plan, and the states. You know, the, the reality is, you know, like... We're the only system we have. Uh, there's not this network of contractors out there to negotiate with or ever. We have to figure out what we can do with the resources that we have. Yeah. I mean, um, and our... I think one of the challenges is actually seeing that through the process that we have of the way that oversights and the regulation is done and everyone seeing themselves as individuals. It goes back to your point around healthcare and population health. I think seeing yourself as a contracted provider versus as a collaborating partner in population health are actually two very really different. very different ways to see yourself. Yeah. And I think we're going to do better the more we see ourselves as both. 
And, and that's going to mean amplifying the population health collaborator part of yeah. what we do, which isn't very amplified. We don't have systems and structures built to do right, that. Right, right. Um, okay, so my last question is, the mobile clinic sees a lot of unhoused patients. Are, is there any system yet to refer them into ECM? They're all eligible. Uh, they're not all eligible, but we they're 60%, 70%, I think. We'll look at the program report numbers. Um, if they're unhoused, aren't they all eligible? But they're not all unhoused. Not oh, yeah, right, I know. But, yeah. um, but the people who are. But like, it's a, a really, and I mean, this is true for the Bridge Clinic as well, and for the ED, is these are like settings where lots of the pe pe people coming through are eligible. Yeah. So they should be a funnel in. I hear you saying that there isn't capacity to take everybody yet. But I'm just wondering if, in this case, the thing that we're responsible for, the mobile clinic, is somehow. There's a system. We haven't monitored how many have been, which mm -hmm. we can do. But it's essentially, you know, sending a referral through Epic to the complex care management team. Mm -hmm. um, there's not a system to refer to Institute on Aging. I don't know who they are. I don't mm -hmm. know if we want to refer to Institute on Aging. I don't know if we actually want to refer outside our system. So someone to get primary care in here. So we have, but we, we can refer patients and have to the complex care management team. We haven't necessarily looked at like, and, and I'm not sure this is the place to prioritize, mm -hmm. you know, how many should we have referred for mobile health and how many did. Mm -hmm. we, we see small numbers of folks and it may be that the case finding that we should be dedicating our small number of resources to should be in bridge clinic or should be in another part of the system. Mm -hmm. But certainly, Wanda knows how to refer people to comp the complex care management team. She does regular clinical consultation with Lily's team in collaboration, mm -hmm. so she knows how to get people in. Um, I think the question is, where do we measure it, monitor it, try to improve it? And I think that's that's a deeper question that we should have a systemic answer to. Um, and I'm not sure that mobile health is the first place that I would pick in our system. Mm -hmm. So I but feel it's a good like for, I mean, you mean across all of AHS? Across all of the homeless health centers. Yeah, okay. So, yes, that's my point. Yeah. It's like we're responsible for the homeless health center. And now there is a thing that can be done for patients who are unsheltered. We should be doing it. Yeah, I think bridge, urgent care. Um, again, all of those systems are pretty well aware of complex care management, which has been a long-term program in our system. I think it's the shift from complex care management being no, us knowing in our heads as clinicians, if they've been to the ER two or three times, you can call Lily about it. Yeah. Now I'm like, oh, actually, they don't even have to have been to the ER right. two or three times, right? Right. But there were a big chunk of those folks were grandfathered in, yeah. Um, and so there is room. Lily came and gave a presentation to us at our ambulatory meeting at the end of the year in 2023, and explained the dynamics of the program and who could be referred and all that to, to all the clinic leaders. So everyone's aware we're going to get to the 300. I, I think the questions are really about like. What are we trying to do? What like have we set a goal as the homeless health center? Mm -hmm. Have we set a goal as Alameda Health System, mm -hmm. right? And then and then how do we achieve that goal? Is it in mobile health that we achieve that goal, or is it a bridge that you know that that, that helps us achieve that goal best? Um, all right. So the the next thing I wanted to just say before we move on to some of the strategies is the number of high needs folks who are eligible for this service, who are served by our emergency departments and hospitals at San Leandro and Highland and Alameda is several times larger than 6,000. 
So we don't just see people in our ER who are assigned to Alameda Health System. We see people in our ER who are assigned to Lifelong and assigned to La Clinica and assigned to other doctors in the community. We see people in our hospital who are assigned to those folks. So from the perspective of outside of you know, the homeless health center, um, these other populations are really, really important too. Our specialists, our ER docs, and our hospital docs, and you know, all the staff who work there are seeing many, many folks who are ECM eligible who I haven't analyzed. Um, and I think that's a really, really important point. Like Dr. Herring, when we've been sort of meeting about this in the ER, who's you know, kind of our, our champion who's spearheaded the Bridge Clinic, he, he's, he really doesn't want to talk much about, the, the, understandably, <laughs> about just who's assigned to us. It's kind, of, it's kind of a silly thing in the ER, right? They don't care. They see everyone who comes there and they want to help everyone who comes there. And they don't have a boundary in their head about not our patient. And, and so, you know, he's really been pushing hard, as has um, Dr. Garland, I would say, from, from the county to say, like, thank you first for starting a planning process, for analyzing some data, for doing these kinds of things. But it needs to be much bigger than this. It can't just be the little thing you're doing. And, it's, and it, it's almost frustrating for them to see it framed in the way that I framed it. So this slide is a little bit of, is just a little bit of recognition of the folks that really want a much bigger frame around this and are even maybe partially annoyed that, <laughs> that it's kind of small. I mean, I get that, but I also feel like that's incumbent on those people at that level to be, like the Alliance, the county should be saying to the Alliance, I wanna see all the numbers, like let's see the full population, let's, you know, but I think that our job just, at the most basic level, like this board is supposed to be overseeing this one slice of things. Like we can start by saying, let's make sure that our little slice is performing. You know, like that's a, it doesn't mean that's the end of the vision, but I feel like that's, and, and for AHS to be doing the same thing. And yeah. And I think there are legitimate perspectives all across that range. Right. So that's all I'm saying is that there's a, there's a mix, there's quite a big mix of perspectives, right? And some folks feel pretty strongly like, let's focus on what we can do and get something specific and right size done. And other folks say, that's preposterous. That won't, <laughs> that won't do very much at all. And if we're not dealing with these bigger issues, that's gonna feel like a drop in the bucket. Um, so the next slide is you know, the, second, the second concession to, to those positions. So a single new Mulberry Clinic will not come close to meeting this large and growing need. It will be a step in the right direction, I think. I think it will be a really meaningful step. I think it will show that we can do some things together, just as Bridge has done. Um, and, and it hopefully is the start of an a acceleration of this kind of planning and this, this kind of work. Um, so I think that's, that's the way that I'm currently trying to hold the full spectrum. Well, you know, there's one thing we can always do, if, not the, if all else fails. You can just simply ask them for more power, more decision-making power. Well, I don't know. I don't know that that actually is. Uh, I, I'm being facetious, but, you know. Yeah. I mean, in terms of what I mean by that is, is you were saying how, you know, we need to look at our own slice and develop what what is part of our responsibility as a board. And then maybe later on, somebody can look at it in its entirety and maybe that's not our responsibility, but at the same time, I think um, that if we were to develop something that, I mean, in regards to what we're responsible for, 
and we do a really good job at it, I think, uh, why not whatever tools or things we can come up with to do that could be used on a larger scale to to basically build out the picture, build out the picture. Yeah, amen. I think we should, we should and you know, everyone's been very generous with us, as you'll see, t teaching us how their models work um, and, and helping us. Um, and so I think we need to be the same way. We need to, this is the population health, you know, thing that you said, like we need to start working together in that way and, or really dramatically increase and accelerate our work in that way. And it's not the way, it's not the way our systems are built. They're, they're not built to do that, but that's the job in front of us. Um, and we've talked about that a lot at this board, growing the collective power of the community, people who care about people experiencing homelessness, right? I think in that way, I don't know that necessarily, you know, that's, that's uh, growing, you know, some sort of administrative power of a specific segment, but I think as a community, absolutely, we need to be able to have the agency to do something about this situation. Um, all right, so key elements of low barrier care. This is like um, just a summary of some of the work that um, that Dr. Lai and Dr. Yulal and I have started. Um, and definitely there's a lot more to do, especially with behavioral health colleagues, with nursing colleagues. I think this whole body of work, um, this is all, I, I forgot to say, just the adults who are eligible, so I didn't. There are youth populations that are also eligible for ECM, and I haven't analyzed any of the data related to people under age 18, so. There's a lot more to do, but where we've started is really looking at staffing models and intervention components um, using this kind of um, this kind of planning framework. I think Suena, you asked last time about is there a planning framework? This is the this is the conceptual planning framework. Um, this isn't the administrative framework, right? Um, but this is the conceptual planning framework. And so, um, Sunny and Monish and I feel like we could be most helpful on step four. Um, kind of looking through the literature and talking to our colleagues about the staffing model and approaches to services. So what have we been doing? Um, we've looked at the literature, including the Max Clinic uh, in Seattle, um, which has a drop-in clinic for uh, people living with HIV that has some pretty impressive published data. The veterans, um, homeless patient-aligned care teams or HPAC teams, um, a lot of national health care for the homeless resources, We've done site visits uh, with uh, Trust Clinic. We have one scheduled with Maria X Martinez Clinic, which is in San Francisco. Sunny's done some phone calls with the Ward 86 pop-up clinic. Um, we've done patient interviews. You guys saw that presented. Um, we've also just um, you know, thought about our own local best practices in, in our programs that you all um, have been introduced to here um, at the co-applicant board. So what are some of these key elements that we've identified? Walk-in access, no surprise. I think that's something that you know we've already talked about in our strategic plan as a co-applicant board. Um, very, very well supported in the literature and in the history of homeless health, uh, uh, national care for the homeless programs. I don't think there's much more we need to say about that. It is in the strategic plan for Alameda Health System overall as well. Um, a second key element, which really came out of thinking about bridge, is direct phone access. Um, so um, both of these first two elements are not the default design of our clinics. So we have a unified call center that is when you call your clinic as a patient of Alameda Health System, with the exception of the Bridge Clinic and the Adult Immunology Clinic, you are actually, in those clinics you are calling, the phone will ring in that space. 
um, with members of that care team. But in other clinics, which is the vast majority of patients, when you call that clinic, the phone will ring at a call center on the Fairmont campus um, with a staff that doesn't work directly in the, in the clinics. And then that staff will, will try to work through your needs. So um, both Bridge Clinic and IC, both Drs. Ulal and Lai really identify this as a key element of their success. Um, it's supported in our conversations with some other folks. Um, there's been less in the literature that we've been able to find about this, but um, we really feel like it's a key element um, of what we want to incorporate in the design. Um, so the next one is um, fairly generic, but I think we're saying com comprehensive and integrated behavioral health and substance use care. Um, this is, you know, behavioral health, problems and challenges and substance use challenges are really uh, incredibly um, prevalent in these, you know, high needs groups. And our communities rank these things as really high needs. I think the questions that we have are not so much the importance of these. I think everyone would say that, but how do you, how do you create a staffing model to deliver these and a service model to deliver comprehensive and integrated care? I think we're going to run into more questions, you know, at that level versus the level of just, is this important to do? Obviously, I think the question is how much and how it, it intersects with building questions and things like that. Question. Yeah. Uh, where it says uh, long acting injectables, are you thinking about like uh, methadone and that sort of thing? Long acting injectable antipsychotics primarily. Oh, antipsychotics. Um, or um, medicines for substance use disorder. Um, so there are you know medicines that, that are injectable that can help people stay off uh, stay off substances that they abuse, um, and they don't have to take them every day. They just come get an injection and then it works. Um, so then, uh, another key element, again, similar in like, not surprising, everyone kind of knows it, but it's operationalized in very different ways is whole person care coordination by which People mean thinking about social connections, thinking about tangible resources. Um, so housing, food, what community groups are you a part of? You know, how do we make sure that you have natural supports around you? Um, this is going to be important for us, you know, in terms of leveraging our both internal and external partnerships to think about how to how to provide care that's that considers the whole person beyond just medical or even behavioral health needs. It makes me think about having the ECM integrated i mean that's partly what the bridge clinic is doing it's not the full ecm but they have all these navigators with hepac who are doing ecm light <laughs> they're right there in the space you yes know, and they're it's not a referral it's not a you know yes um, yep so that's a really key question yeah. and i think lily and i've talked a lot about that so we have different models of that bridge is one aic has community health workers that work for the clinic are managed through the clinic structure. And then the rest of our clinics have a complex care management team mm -hmm. that they can refer to, yeah. you know, including mobile health, say, outside of the clinical team that cares for patients. And so that how you think about teaming and who's on the team and how teams interact is, I think, uh, critical to figuring out how you implement that. Um, go ahead, Mark. Um, what is HEPPAC? HEPAC is the HIV Education Prevention Project of Alameda County. Oh, okay. And they've been doing uh, needle exchange since basically the beginning of the HIV epidemic, once it was found to be a helpful 
intervention, including before it was protected by law. Um, and um, they've really evolved to provide a range of preventive services, including um, naloxone distribution um, and needle exchange and syringe exchange. Um, and they're a big partner of the Bridge Clinic. So they have staff that are actually um, co-located in the, in the Bridge Clinic. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is pretty new. Which is very new. Yeah. Um, within the last, I mean, shortly before we started working with the Bridge Clinic to, to make sure that they could get FQHC status, I think, oh, the partnership okay. with HEPAC and, and I don't actually understand how it all works financially, but, I mean, I started working with Dr. Herring before this happened, and he had this vision of getting HEPAC, like his vision has always been to merge the harm reduction, like bring the harm reduction world into healthcare, which is a lot of what in his, the harm reduction world is like, those are the grassroots folks. Those are the folks who have lived experience who are, you know, some of them are still using substances. You know, it's very much like, these are the people who are peers of the patients who are coming into that clinic. And his ideas, they will be able to better serve them, relate to them, make a more welcoming environment, all that stuff. And I don't actually know how it's going. <laughs> well, I think that, that relates to this other key element. So yeah, yes, relationship-centered yes. care, right? Yeah. Your ability to build relationships with peers is different than your ability to build relationships with like a service professional. Um, and I think to be relationship-centered, I think that's another, it's clear to everyone, there's kind of agreement. This is a really important thing to prioritize in your planning, but how to do it is a big question. Yeah. And ECM, for example, um, with onerous reporting requirements for you know the programs create onerous documentation requirements for staff, which is not a super friendly environment for hiring peers. Um, so another kind of tension that comes to the surface as you're planning a service like this. Um, okay, we can go to the next slide. So these are key questions that you know we have. You guys have asked some others that I've written down. Um, but um, you know, how will we balance the tension between the overwhelming needs and the limited new capacity um, to deliver comprehensive care? So you know, we talked about six thousand assigned people, only three hundred of whom are in any kind of care management program. Um, less than half of whom are using our clinics at all. I think anything we design, there'll be immediately a very high demand for. And I think the question of how we figure out how to do that is going to be central to success. Um, how do we balance being person-centered with the benefits of standardization? Things like peers for some groups versus standard reports that we need to get done as an example of those, that kind of balancing. Um, what do we mean by care coordination, um, in particular with regard to staffing ratios and intensity of services? And then what are the outcomes we'll monitor for success? I think talking to Jay at the trust clinic you know, he really has a shifting array of outcomes that kind of depend upon what's happening in the clinic space, what's happening in the community, what's happening in the environment. And it really felt right to me talking to him about, he doesn't necessarily stick with like, you know, one set of outcomes for all time. He certainly doesn't, you know, align with like HEDIS measures or QIP measures or the kinds of things that we report to you guys already. He's like, you need to throw those things out the window. Um, but at the same time, we can't just have a free-for-all, you know? And so I think that's the question of like, how do we think about 
measuring success, I think is going to be a really important one as well. Well, can you give any examples of things that you like you said shifting, but like what are some? I mean, uh, you know, diabetes um, control measures, for example, can be wholly irrelevant. So if you have, you know, control of diabetes to the level that's been identified in scientific studies to prevent complications 10 to 20 years from now, and you have someone who's living on the streets, that measure is kind of irrelevant. As a clinician, if they're trying to get into a house and get off drugs and repair their relationship with their family, if you want to spend time talking about the nuances of getting close to this like diabetes target, you're often at odds with your own patient because you're like, they don't want to do that. But then your administrators are telling you, <laughs> you know, and all these things around you and your email inbox is full of the new quality thing for diabetes is this or that, right? So it's a real disconnect actually between how we manage and participating in a big system like ours, right? And what's told is what we're told is important versus listening to the patients and doing what is important, you know, in that context. So that's an example. Is the trust clinic specifically for unhoused people? Is it, it was initially set up for people who were um, unemployed, unemployable and on general assistance, um, many of whom are homeless um, because of connections with benefits advocates through the disability process. Um, but it's evolved really to be you know, for high needs populations more broadly, very much, you know, for people experiencing homelessness, but you're not kicked out if you're not homeless. And I think another insight from talking to Jay is just, he says we are not like we have too much of anything, but we have relatively a lot more outreach and engagement services from his perspective around the county than we do longitudinal care. And he says there's a huge demand. He said there's plenty of people who will take you up on a place to go and get care for their problems. He's like, there's not enough of that. And we've done a good job saying, or a better job, he would say, saying, reaching people mm -hmm. and letting them know about services. But then when you pull them in, is there a place to go where they can stay? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a concern he has about like the current bridge clinic by itself without a system backing it up is, sure, you can show up there. It's easy to get in. Mm -hmm. But then what? Does it help you get better over the long term? How do we know? And he was really encouraging, you know, building something that is a continuity service that that helps people get better over the long term and sticks with patients. You know, he's like, don't. And we've had the same, same experience with mobile. Don't build transitional things. People build relationships that help them become healthy. You don't then say, oh, now you're now you're housed. Go to this other clinic. You know, oh, yeah. you've already had all these people you've built relationships to take care of you. So another kind of big tension, right? Because from the administrator standpoint, you're like, well, we're pouring the resource into this place. It's this high resource thing. We want to get you into our lower resource setting. And I think, you know, well, it might be too strong to say it, but a lot, of, a lot of folks may say that's kind of the original sin. It's like, if you're making people break a relationship, then you're undoing the thing that's most helpful. Um, so obviously, you know, we still need to deal with these questions of clinic site, funding plan. We've talked a little bit about potentially the E-Wing next to Away one as being a clinic site to look at next to the Bridge Clinic. Um, I think funding plan, we're, you know, certainly hoping for it to be FQHC, obviously. 
Um, and beyond that, I think the supplemental sources of revenue, enhanced care management, opiate settlement funds, I think there's a whole bunch of questions about what are the other sources of revenue, both one time and ongoing that could be applied um, that I think are good to actually, even though in this model, they're, they're two and three before four, I think it's actually good to do four and then be able to go back and forth. Um, once you know the clinical model you're looking for, being able to go back and forth and say, if we take that funding source, how does it make us adjust our clinical model? If we locate at that site, how does it make us adjust our clinical model? Um, so, you know, I think it's a good thing for us to be working, you know, and especially in light of what you said, Mark, about sharing with other folks and making sure we're doing it as a community, right. doing this kind of planning ahead of time, then before we're anchored to a specific place, helps us be more useful for when we want to do this the next time and the next time and the next time. Um, so this is the last slide, I think. Um, Next steps are complete our interview, site visit, literature review, um, getting feedback from you all in CalAIM. So we've now finished that step, um, or we've finished the first round of that step. Complete a first draft of our clinical and staffing model. Um, we'll probably do that by the end of this month. Um, and then um, we've had initial meetings with the space planning and financial planning leaders at Alameda Health System. Um, but I think you know the highlighted red thing is we don't really have a formal planning process still. Um, to figure out how to meet these much larger needs. And even the process that we have for just this clinic is not really a formal planning process. This is in our strategic plan for Alameda Health System. It's in our strategic plan as a homeless health center, but the idea of how do you go from zero to a new clinic, um, there's, not, there's not a prescribed pathway for that. So we really need to work with our leaders at AHS to define that and, and be able to take our ideas and then move them into implementation. I think it's gonna be important going forward. Yeah. Especially with this, with, uh, with this project. I was writing down my question so I wouldn't forget and I already forgot. You can write them all down. <laughs> um, all right, one of my questions that I did manage to write down was community support services is another benefit in under Calais, that seems very relevant to this our population. Oh, I know what my question was. Okay, it's about the drop-in clinic. I just have to write it down. Or, <laughs> um, first of all, do you know if this is it the same population that's eligible for community supports? Is it the same definition as for ECM? It isn't. You, you can uh, be eligible for community supports even if you're not in the ECM population. Oh, okay. Um, but the supports that are, that have been created, many of which are around housing, yeah. work well for this population. Yeah, okay. So I feel like that's something that would be part of the financial model, maybe, or at least part of the partnership model, or something that would be part of this conversation. Absolutely. Part of the partnership model, more likely. Yeah. Um, we're not providing any community supports currently directly that I'm aware of. Uh -huh. I know the health system, so park, but but absolutely, we we might want to figure out who are the two or three top community support yeah. providing partners that we want. Yeah. Um, okay, my question was the drop-in clinic. Is it um, explicitly in the in the? You said it's in the AHS strategic plan. Mm -hmm. Is it specifically a drop-in clinic to serve people experiencing homelessness, or is it just a drop-in clinic? I'll have to look at the language. I can't remember. So I can send it, I can send it out to all of you in okay. the specific language that's in the plan. Okay, because I mean we put it in this strategic plan with the goal of 
serving that population. So I think that what, what you said about like, I mean, it really kind of relates to everything because it relates to what are the outcomes? How do we know? How do we measure our success? Like, Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think uh, to me, what really resonated, you said earlier, is like the population health planning process, right? I mean, we've, we've heard about, you know, in, in just talking to Ken Kinney, a, a business planning process. Is that related to a population health planning process? <laughs> like, if our business does well, but the population we're taking care of doesn't, mm -hmm. how do we think about that? Mm -hmm. um, do we have any processes that are named population health planning processes or health planning processes? We, we don't really, you know, at least again, that I've been able to engage at, at the larger level. So I think we're having to build the tools to do this kind of work because it's, di it's different than the way that, and Cal Ames really created that, you know? So I think uh, one of the venues that's been most supportive and most fruitful for talking about this and is our internal Cal AIM, you know, uh, committee, which is which has helped us kind of process these ideas and analyze yeah. the state and ask us a lot a lot of smart questions, and so I think it's going to be leveraging that kind of work that's happening inside the organization. So that's that is definitely all I have for you formally. Um, I think sunny slides are included at the end, which you all saw already. Um, but um, if there's any other questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. I think we should, uh, as we go along, I think we should definitely um, continue to try to brainstorm ideas about uh, um, how to um, create a formal, a formal planning process because um, I think that's going to be very important for us to be able to implement this um, and maximize the dollars we're given to actually operate. Yeah, and as we talked about, I think, at our last meeting, that ad hoc committee, which is about governance and how you all as a co-applicant board um, share governance responsibilities with the board of trustees, I think is an ideal venue to, to drive that, the creation of that planning process. I definitely agree with okay, that. Okay. Let's use this business strategy process thing that we have. Let's let, let's define some steps and let's move through it. And, um, let's, let's make sure that all the stakeholders we need are consulted through that process and let's set a timeline and have people show up at co-opting board and board of trustees meetings and, and get it done. You know, that sounds great. Richard or Tammy, any any thoughts that you all have? No, it sounds like we just got a lot of work to do. Well, thank you so much for your your work, Dr. Francis. As always. Yeah, thank you. It's really it's really been uh, the most important thing has been having our strategic plan. Um, so all the work that we did as a co-applicant board together, you know, a year and a half ago, I think has really helped guide like that. This is the thing that, you know, Heather and I should be focused on and we should be trying to drive forward and helps us kind of over the humps and challenges. So really appreciate you guys setting that agenda. That's 
absolutely the foundation of like where we are right now. Is that right. that's the plan? Thank you, Damon. I'm moving on to item D. Uh, annual I, risk report. That's right. The annual risk report. So every year we do a reflective look at the prior year of the risk events that happened within the homeless health center. Um, and so this is your annual risk report. There's a description. Alameda Health System is a just culture. And it's the concept of designing, implementing, and supporting a fair and just learning culture within the organization. And so that entails um, managing behavioral choices and designing safer systems to prevent errors. And it includes that the employees at Alameda Health System would submit um, risk events through our system called MIDAS. What's a risk event? <laughs> I can tell you what a risk event is. So if you look at the next page, it has um, definitions. So we have two different types of events. We have patient relations events that are submitted by our staff into the MIDA system, and also patient risk events that are submitted into the system. So patient relations is a complaint or a grievance, and a patient risk is, a, is an event that may have the capacity to cause harm to a patient. Um, and then there's different levels of risk that are identified depending on what it is that happened. And so each risk event is associated with a level. And so you can see the levels there, A through I, and um, levels of severity. So a level A risk event is a circumstance that had uh, capacity to cause harm. B means that um, it didn't reach the patient. So an event occurred and it didn't reach the patient that had the capacity to cause harm um, versus an event that did reach the patient but didn't cause harm, but could have, but didn't. Um, and then you get more severe with D that we had to monitor the patient to make sure that the patient wasn't harmed. And then E is there was harm. It was either temporary, um, it required an intervention. And then after that, it required prolonged hospitalization. Beyond that is permanent patient harm, et cetera. So for the homeless, for, for 2023, calendar year 2023, um, there for the organization were 1,064 events that were submitted into the tracking system for the whole organization, for all of Alameda Health System. Those that were within scope, as in, in the scope of project, as ambulatory care primarily, there were 562. And in there, then we usually look at those specific medical record numbers that are homeless, so part of the homeless health center. And this year, there is a there's a break in the reporting, and so we requested uh, that to be fixed. So when we tried to run this report, it didn't include the medical record numbers this year, and so we're waiting for that to be fixed to find out how many were actually homeless in scope for the patient relations events, which are the complaints and grievances that patients submit to us, either through the through Alameda Alliance, their provider, or through um, staff directly. So patients could complain directly to me, and I could enter that into MIDAS, or the patient could agree to 
Alameda Alliance, and then it's put into the system. Hmm. And then in addition, there are patient risk events. This report was working as expected um, and as designed. So there were 2,421 for the whole organization over the calendar year. Of those that were in scope for ambulatory care, there were 87. And those that were within the homeless for patients experiencing homelessness, our homeless health center and our registry, there were seven. And this represents uh, roughly 8% of all of them were related to the homeless health center, which was the same amount that occurred last year. There were about 8%. If we go back to the um, a narrative, I describe a little bit more in detail the risk events and the patient relations events. So for those seven things that happened within the homeless health center, all of them were below category D or D or, or below. So no, nothing that needed. If you go back to your D, the most severe was that they required, that resulted in no harm, nobody was harmed, but they did require some monitoring to make sure that there was no harm. So nothing went beyond that level for any of our patients experiencing homelessness. And then when I looked more in detail at those um, actual events, just double checking after. Okay, so um, they were primarily related to labeling that I might not have, I, I was checking to see if I had, yes, labeling errors in patient behavior. So those were most of the risk events that happened. Um, and so in some cases it was that a label was put on incorrectly for a specimen that was sent down to the lab and therefore that test needed to be rerun. So the patient wasn't harmed, but there was a risk that their you know, results would have come back later than expected because the label was incorrectly applied and therefore they had to do the test again and it happened at a later date. Um, others were um, patient behaviors. So these were in Alameda Health System, we typically refer to these as code gray. And so in this case, it's sometimes it's patient harm, but sometimes it's also but risk for staff. There's risk for staff to be harmed. And so these were uh, code grays where we needed to intervene to make sure that everybody was safe either patient or staff. For the patient relations events, even though we don't have specifically around um, the patients experiencing homelessness, I did look at what the overall for ambulatory care, what were the typical things that were happening for patients um, within ambulatory care and what these grievances and complaints were about. And you'll see here that um, 50%, over 50% of them were related to access to appointments. Um, and most of them were related to, um, to appointment access and not telephone access. Um, and most of them were also of those access. It wasn't about your weight the same day. It was mostly about access to my appointment. And it was either access to my appointment, access to my referral appointment, access to um, something else related to the referral um, into, into care. So waiting for that first appointment to come in was most of the, the complaints. Um, then the quality of care complaints was about 20% of those, and professionals and then communication were 15%. The quality of care, um, as it's described within our system also for all of the complaints, there's also a large list of what you could attribute. It was quality of care, and then you could say nursing. Um, 
physician, medication, uh, disagreement with the healthcare, with the plan of treatment. So there's a lot of variation. And so these were just lumped together to say quality of care. And there wasn't anything that jumped out as very like heavily this versus that. It was just a, a whole mix of them, quality of care. And then the same thing for professionalism and communication for the 15%, you know, there are additional details that you can drill down into and nothing was standing out as being particularly strong. It's not overwhelmingly communication by front desk versus clinicians versus nurses. They're spread out and they happen. Okay. Why do you do this? Does somebody require this? I mean, it's, yes, it is required. Um, and and so, um, it, for example, when we are monitored, um, the Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless program will ask us whether our, our risk events have been presented to the board because you have residence authority. And this is one of the things that they monitor to check to make sure that you had a chance to review those events. Yeah, so if that 8% was like 50%, then okay. we wouldn't want to be hiding that from you. Like, oh, 50% okay, of the events were people experiencing homelessness. What's going, is there a trend in right. this that we need to worry about? Right. Um, so, I mean, from my perspective, there's no trend in this you need to worry about it. We present it annually. You know that we're monitoring it and we do this for reg regulatory compliance, um, primarily because there aren't there aren't trends that were that you know we need to show you more frequently. If you if you see this data and you say we want you to spend more of your time focused on this data, then then we have to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but but we this is the minimum we have to do to meet the regulatory requirement. When we started with this um, in 2020, we did do it more frequently. It was on a quarterly basis, and after looking at it every quarter, mm -hmm. um, it was determined by down. the cab that it was only needed once a year because again. The, the trends were such that it really is um, a compliance, a reflective look back for the purposes of the homeless health center, specifically around patients experiencing homelessness. You Certainly do also, as staff, like internally, we have processes where we look yes. at this more frequently, but do you all need to as a board look at it more frequently? The board decided no. Right. Um, you Through the program report also you see um, patient satisfaction survey data on a monthly basis. And so that's another place where you would see something that's similar to the patient relations events. Mm -hmm. um, it would it would come out in both of those areas. Do we um, report, sorry, go ahead. Okay, no, I'm sorry. Well, I'm just gonna ask, do we report the number to the county or just report to the county that we looked at the numbers? Number two. I just had one question. Um, you know, we talk about the incidences between, um, well, about patient risk and patient relations. And um, I, I'm just wondering, um, is there another separate book of numbers kept somewhere in which reports of what doctors, what happens to doctors in those situations? Because doctors can be hurt too, just as well as a patient. Right. right. So, and as I was describing, the it, it's all in the same place. And oh, so it's all in the same place. It, yeah, it's all the same system that's you utilized. Whether whether it's it's a patient or staff that are at risk, it's all within this compliance reporting um, uh, system. Okay. Yeah. 
And, and so even for the this... highest risk profession is nursing, by the way, in, in, the, in, oh, the, in, the, in the acute setting, much higher than doctors. Yeah. So when I said there are patient, there were there were uh, patient behaviors, and there were um, uh, code grays, for example, that are called. I would. I didn't specify. You know, it. it the patient or the staff, either one could have been at risk in that situation. I'm just acknowledging that they were patient that they were patient behaviors, and I'm not giving any more detail. Oh, I see. Okay. Than that, you know, it, it, because again, we're talking about relatively few related to people experiencing homelessness within our. You know, there were seven events. Oh, okay. And I, and I think, and I think what's what's important to know also is of these of these risk events. You know, total in ambulatory care is 87, and they're reviewing those. And you know, there's a lot that happens within ambulatory care. Talking about staff safety, staff safety is very important. It's definitely on the high um, priority list of conversations in most clinics. Yeah, there was a review of standard work around labeling, for example, in relation to the labeling errors, so that we actually changed some processes around. How we did specimen labeling in response to this in response to this report, but I think I think it's appropriate that our board was like, "This is normal healthcare. You guys seem to be operating it well. Once a year, you show us that you seem to be operating it well, and we move on." Any other questions? I just want to ask one more question. I basically agree. I just want to, I feel like due diligence. I need to just, <laughs> so the 8% mm -hmm. is seven out of 87. Correct. Okay. Correct. So that doesn't seem like a lot, but I guess my question is what, well, if you were to add, is that, is this the right question? Like if I were to add up all of the homeless as a fraction of all the patients, would I get 8% or would it's I get 6%? Like 6%. 6%. 6%. 6%. Okay. It is close though. Okay. If I were going to get two, then I might ask. Right. <laughs> That's totally perfect. <laughs> yes, we right, want to see that 50% of those in scope were in the homeless health center. Right. That would be a lot. Obviously, a lot. But I think the 8%. Because I know that the percentage is low. Yeah. So. Richard says something. Yes, Richard. Oh, Richard um, accidentally, I don't see him on the call. Oh, is there a second guy? I think I something happened. Something he, he did. Oh, and maybe he went, maybe yeah. he. Now he disappeared. We'll give him a moment to, yeah, to reach. I'm sure he'll be back. I will text him. I know. <laughs> Is that you? Where are you? Um, in that picture. Oh, in that picture, that's me um, at, at Yosemite. Oh. In front of the, the that's Vernal Falls uh -huh. at Yosemite um, this past fall in October. Um, I wonder if his device um, 
lost power. That could be his internet. Well, because we're recording, um, so can I offer Serena, Mark, or Tammy the opportunity to help us? Oh, there he is. <laughs> help us move along in the agenda. You can direct me. He's back. Sorry, guys. <laughs> All right. Well, we didn't want to move on without you. Go ahead. Please proceed. Thank you so much. All <laughs> right. So the final thing on our agenda is the program report. Um, and like you have the opportunity to review this data at your leisure and dig into it. Um, the primary things that I wanted to point your attention to is the continuing, um, aside from Highland Primary Care, which continues to have a growing number of people on um, the wait list. The other sites have a reduction of patients on the wait list. So we are seeing that trending down. And remember that's because there were new providers who were recently um, added at uh, Newark and Hayward and Eastmont. So those numbers are all decreasing. Other than that, I would say that the information in the program report does not look significantly different from the previous month. If there's anything that you want to look at specifically, please help me uh, pull up that page and we can, I can answer any questions that are on your mind. I think I'm going to review this and then I may have more worthy questions to ask. And that's fine. You know, you can always reach me anytime and I'm happy to answer any questions you might have. Yeah, because I'll have to look at this a lot more deep, deeper. We have just finished the calendar year, so happy new year. Um, what happens now with our data for me is I focus on a calendar review. So the UDS report, our uniform data system, requires us to look at the calendar year. So it's January 1st, 2022, I'm sorry, 2023 through December 31st of 2023. And so in the upcoming months, you will get a different kind of synopsis of the homeless health center, kind of through the lens of the UDS system that will give you um, likely more details about what did we see over this calendar year um, utilization, the total number for a year, um, the ages of patients, the uh, race and ethnicity of patients, and other other details that we are typically sending to the county that then go to HRSA, the federal government, to report out on the homeless health center in its entirety. So us plus everybody else. So you will get that. Um, usually we report that around March or April. So 
That's what we're working on right now. That sounds interesting. It always is. Yeah, it can be benchmarked. I think the federal government has created a website also where you can compare the UBS data in various ways across the country. So you can kind of benchmark some of the things, which is, which is interesting to do. Um, I just have one little question. Percent QIP metric on target. I see that for some of these. What is the metric? The, or, there are um, quality oh, the incentive of programs. all the metrics. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, so that's the way, that's the summary measure we've chosen to give for the quality incentive program. Um, and they're very, they're very close together across the clinics. I think ESMOD is consistently the highest in the high 80s. And I think uh, Hayward has been slightly below in the low 80s or high 70s uh, in terms of the proportion of measures. So it's pretty consistently we've achieved targets. The QIP goals change each year. So we expect that number to change. And I think for the services we're talking about, you know, those are the kinds of goals that Jay would say, please don't, please don't make those your goals. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I would agree with him and pretty much anyone in homelessness would, would agree with him that like we need to adapt the outcomes right. we're, we're looking at. Except for, that meeting those metrics brings dollars. It does. Um, it does across the system. The Unless you have a large portion of new patients, we wouldn't meaningfully affect the denominator with a clinic of the size that we're talking about across the entire system. And the way that they're shifting the measures is more about getting people in the system. So if you don't get people in, they'll be they'll start to be in our denominators, um, which they haven't been in the past. So if anything, the work we're doing is actually in line with where the state um, is driving the quality incentive program to be more aligned with the rest of Cal AIM and those kinds of things. So it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be that kind of issue for us, fortunately. Um, other than getting more generically challenging, the challenge will be aligned with the ones that we're trying to address. Right. All right, back to you, Richard. Final questions. Um, is this the public comment section? Not yet. Okay. <laughs> public this comment. I'm curious what if there's any update on the budget situation. Or excuse, I should say co-applicant board member comments. Yes. I was getting to that next. Oh, okay. Okay. I guess that would be my comment. I don't think there's any other I I did have a question. Can I can I respond to Oh I didn't hear what you, oh, I'm sorry. Did I you say something? Asking what's the budget? What oh, what, oh I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. So uh so yeah, we did have a meeting uh with uh Mark Fratsky, Kim Miranda, and Tangerine Brigham toward the end of December. And um I think it was clear at that meeting what the goals were for the budget that we wanted to see and uh, Kim and Grace were on and agreed to work on it. So we should have an update soon about where it is and hopefully we'll be presented a budget in February. Actually, our UDS report will really necessitate that we use similar accounting to figure out what our costs were last year. So ideally, and we have to get that report done as well. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll have a budget for you in February. Um, but I don't, 
we can't guarantee it, but we're, hope, we're hopeful. Oh, okay. Um, um, I, uh, I just want to find out whether or not I can actually um, propose something uh, for our, um, to be um, a part of our agenda uh, next month. Um, I wanted to propose that, um, or I would like to hear an update uh, uh, um, about our uh, pilot dental program. It okay. may not be next month, if that's okay. I mean, I think we have to talk to the staff and then figure out what the rest of the agenda is, but we can bring that back okay. soon. Yeah, Heather? Yes. Are you referring to the um, the Highlands-based or the mobile-based? The, the mobile one. The mobile space. <clears throat> Thank you for clarification. Okay, no problem. You, you mean the, mo the new mobile van? Yeah, the new mobile van. That we don't have yet? Yes. Gotcha. I'm sorry. I, I it's uh, yes. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I will. It's coming up, coming soon. Oh, okay. Coming soon. Their report is coming soon. Okay. Thank you. All right. Anything else? Uh, it is. I wanted to ask if it's possible for us to be invited to visit do any site visits with you that you're doing oh um uh, could you repeat the question so i think in the as part of the process of fact finding and so forth you're going to see things and so I, let me just make a request that if feasible could we be invited yeah i think um i haven't been personally it's been mostly monish and sunny who've gone uh, i mostly had meetings at cafes with people or over the phone. Um, but if it's possible, I can, you know, I don't have to write that like, down. I mean, just that we could be invited. We may or may not be able to come, but just it would be cool. To yeah, know. yeah, absolutely. No, it's great. When when uh, Loretta joined us at the um, Cardea <coughs> with um, with Kim Kinney, I think that was a great visit. So I think more of more of that stuff would be great. So Yeah, I was invited on a visit. Unfortunately, I had to miss you it. Weren't, you were unable to come to that I was one. Unable to come Trustee right Esteen was also invited and was unable to come. We need to keep. We need to keep doing or do another one of those. I want to. I want to. I want. I'm not going to miss this. One. If I get invited again, I'm not going to miss it. <laughs> we haven't had it. There hasn't been anything that you've not been invited to yet. So it's just a matter of figuring out how to prioritize it. But I, that's something that we thought was really successful and was part of our proposal for the ad hoc committee, for example, that that could be built in as a, an ongoing structure, some quarterly thing that involves the board of trustees, and that we actually make it. Instead of like, if you can invite us more formal, like let's try to do something quarterly, you know, with some of our closest partners like HEMPAC. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know. Anything else? <laughs> well, I guess I also just want to say this was a very cool meeting. I really enjoyed this. This felt very tangible. <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to adjourn the meeting today at 7.53. Have a good evening. Good night, everyone. Thanks for calling in, Richard. Feel better. Thank you. I will see everyone. <laughs>
Thank you. I feel better. Um, I will see everyone next month in person, hopefully COVID-free this time. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.